The Appendix N Podcast, Episode 17, Creep, Shadow Creep, by A. Merritt. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we read and discuss the authors that influenced Gary Gygax, one of the creators of Dungeons & Dragons. In the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, Gygax published a list of his favorite fantasy authors, and this list has come to be known simply as Appendix N. Every episode, we will read a story and talk about it. We will review the story and talk about how it relates to the game being played at your table. If you would like to be a part of the show, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of the episode for a list of some upcoming stories. Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. And with me today is my co-host, as always, Jeff Wickstrom. Welcome back, Jeff. Hello, everybody. And once again, joining us is my special guest, Chris Constantine. Welcome back, Chris. Pleased to be here. Uh, How have both of you been? Jeff, you go first. I have been well. I got a haircut recently. That's amazing. I know. It was the first time in quite a while. Um, Now my hair is shorter. Chris, did you get a haircut? Uh, Not recently, no, but uh, generally it's been good for the last couple of weeks. Okay. Nothing Nothing really to report, just more of the same. Have you have you both read uh, Creep Shadow Creep or as it's sometimes known Creep Shadow with an exclamation point? Yes, indeed. I have indeed, indeed. Okay. Uh, today we are reviewing uh, Creep Shadow Creep or as it's sometimes known Creep Shadow with an exclamation point by Abraham Merritt. Abraham Merritt, born 1884, died 1943. He was primarily a journalist in his lifetime. He was the assistant editor of the American Weekly from 1912 to 1937, and then he was the editor until his death in 1943. He was a popular writer in his day, and he's relatively unknown in our time, which is the opposite of, say, H.P. Lovecraft, who ironically was a big fan of his, and even collaborated with him on uh, a particular story uh, that we may get to on this show. All right, so so far we've we've read on this show uh, two stories by Merritt. We've we've read the Moon Pool and Dwellers in the Mirage. Uh, the Moon Pool was sort of universally panned by everyone. Uh, Dwellers in the Mirage was uh, marginally better, and uh, today we're talking about Creep Shadow Creep. So, Jeff. What did, what did you think about Creep Shadow Creep compared to your, your previous outings with Merritt? I certainly enjoyed it more than I enjoyed Merritt's uh, previous couple of books, though I feel like my dislike of the previous couple of books uh, really says more about my tastes relative to Merritt's strengths rather than particular weaknesses on the part of those books. Mm-hmm. Um, but this seemed more... I don't know if I want to say more accessible, exactly. 
but it seemed that Merritt was certainly in a very comfortable mode writing about New York and Rhode Island as, a pair, as compared to uh, you know, crazy lost cities uh, beneath the, the, the mist. Mm-hmm. And, and Skype is making noises, and I'm not quite sure why. All right. And Chris, uh, did, you, did you read any of the previous uh, Merritt materials? Unfortunately, I went in totally blind. I actually, this is the first one of Merritt's writings I've ever read. So, so what did and, you think of it compared to other stuff from the period? I liked it. I wouldn't say I loved it. Mm-hmm. It was a fun narrative. It had some neat concepts. Like it was particularly interesting how it laid down the format, but it ultimately came down to being a femme fatale story, not unlike something that would be out of the '30s, some of the periodicals, like Flash Gordon or something, mm-hmm. and, where you and, have, yeah. yeah. Where you have the scary man, and then you have the do- evil daughter that can either be changed or will change the hero. Yeah, well, Merritt liked to split his femme fatale up into two characters, which is something that we see here in uh, Creep Shadow, and was also the case in Dwellers in the Mirage and the Moon Pool. Right, there's, there's usually a... A, a wicked woman and, and a good woman. And in this case, the wicked woman is the demoiselle de- Dahut? I, I can't even say her name. Um, I think it is just pronounced Dahut. I could very, very easily be wrong. Uh, she's also referred to as the Demoiselle de Ease. Right. Which uh, is a title that immediately put me in the mind of The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers, which has a short story entitled The Demoiselle de Ease. I was, I was, I was instantly reminded of the uh, Japanese RPG. Uh, I think, I think it's Wanderers from Ease that was popular. I think it was, it was, it was a NES title. Um, but anyways, um, so to 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 quickly just summarize uh, the the story for those who haven't read it, uh, our our hero is a Dr. Alan uh, Karanak, who has recently returned to the states from uh, abroad. Uh, and he finds that one of his friends, uh, billionaire uh, Dick Ralston, has been murdered, and he gets together with one of his other friends. Uh, is it is it Bill Bill Bennett? Is the is the the other guy? And they they try and figure out who it who it uh, could have been, and they quickly settle on uh, two likely candidates in the form of uh, Doctor DeCaradel. I forget what his what his first name is, and his daughter. Uh, this woman, uh, Dahut, and uh, from from there the story uh, quickly uh, reveals to us that uh, all of these people, or or at least uh, Alan and uh, Dahut, had uh, past lives, and uh, DeCaradel through hip, uh, hypnotism has uh, put their their uh, modern selves in touch with their past lives, so that this this story is going to. Uh, play itself out again. Uh, Dahut is some sort of, of witch that controls uh, shadows that uh, attach themselves to people, and that's how she uh, drove uh, Dick Ralston crazy and then uh, murdered him. And uh, she uh, falls in love with uh, Alan, probably because in, in their, their past lives, both of them were uh, lovers. And she threatens to uh, murder Alan's friends unless Alan joins her at the uh, DeCaradel uh, compound in Rhode Island. Um, so uh, Alan 
Uh, after uh, en enlisting the help of some uh, mafia, which I believe is a, is a connection to the previous story, uh, Burn Witch Burn, uh, Alan, Alan goes to the uh, Dick DeCaradel uh, compound to uh, in investigate and see if, if, if he can stop uh, the bad guys, uh, and then he does. Um, but yeah. that, yes. Long story short, that is basically how it goes. The uh, the most interesting part, I think, comes towards the end of the book when Dehut and Alan have a you know a spat, which results in Dehut using magic to pull Alan's soul out of his body and send him to the uh, what is basically the elemental plane of shadow, mm -hmm. where he wanders around for a while. Hence the title of the book, Creep Shadow. Right. The, the, the most fantastic elements in this, in this book come in, in the last, like, you know, 50, 60 pages or so. The, 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 the last third, let's say, of, of the book. The, the other two-thirds take place mostly in uh, New, York, New York City. Uh, I, I think about, about the first half, a third of the book takes place at this, this dinner party at dr bennett's house where he's trying to draw out the de, de caradels and kind of like get them to admit that they're up to no good which they quickly do it it, it doesn't really take take much uh yeah it takes a couple of chapters to get through the the dinner party that introduces the um the antagonist and it's a it's a pretty talky book um all in all but it's you know there's it's some interesting conversation, I think, and it is a sequel to Burn Witch Burn. There are a couple of secondary characters that were more major characters in Burn Witch Burn who reappear here. Right, I think they very quickly summarized the plot. Basically, there there was a witch that was bringing uh, dolls to life, and uh, Doctor Lowell, with the help of the same uh, mafia people that show up in this book, basically put her down somehow. Yeah, it's it's sort of a Deus ex machina where the uh, you just if you have a problem with witches, you just call up the mafia and they send some guys. Yeah, apparently, uh, I, I, I guess it it ties into this book because uh, Dick Haradell was the was the student or the or the protege of uh, the witch from the previous book. Yes, and um, Lowell is the guy who throws the dinner party that the first you know, third or so of the book most, more or less takes place at. Mm -hmm. Although, funny thing, uh, I did kind of skim Burn Witch Burn, and like the very first thing that I read about Burn Witch Burn is the guy saying, uh, in, in, the, uh, in Burn Witch Burn, Lowell is the narrator, and he's saying, I'm, I'm referring to myself as Lowell in this, but my name is not really Lowell. Uh, you know, for reasons of anonymity, blah blah blah, as was not in, as was as was the style at the time uh, mm -hmm. with this sort of book. Uh, but then here in the sequel, everybody refers to him as Lowell, despite the fact that you know it's not Lowell that's writing this. Yeah, yeah. I mean this 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 book makes no attempt to sound like it's like it's a journal or like like a like a found story, right? I mean. Um, yeah, Alan, some... Alan, Alan narrates the thing, but he even he even talks about you know his his experiences when he was under hypnosis that he later forgets about. So, yeah, I mean there are some stories um, that are written in that style that make more of an effort to appear to be uh, you know found found notes, and this is this is not one of them, which is not something that I really hold against it. Right. 
I, I actually in, in enjoyed all the stuff in New York City, even even though it was it was really slow and like you said, uh, talky. I, I just I, I kind of enjoyed reading about like what what high society, you know, rich people were were like, you know, going to the theater, going going to clubs, having having drinks, all that all that kind of thing, staying up until three o'clock in the morning. Oh, my goodness. That, that appears to be a, a fairly routine thing. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I, I, I I really feel like, unlike Lovecraft, like Merritt's stuff could be made into films. I yeah, I completely. Think, you can I see would the say this would be very filmable. Yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry, you. Chris. I, I'm, no, I'm sorry, Chris. I, I spoke over you. Okay. Yeah, you can definitely see the highlights. You can see it's basically taking place in the 20s or 30s. You can almost feel a flapper backdrop. You know, they're going to a party, and that pretty much sets everything up. Without the party set up and set up, and the whole feeling of basically almost had a feeling of an old school murder mystery for the first bit, other than the fact it really wasn't because they weren't exactly subtle when it comes to admitting their guilt. Yeah, we we very quickly find out who the who the murderers are in very very fast, and 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 the story is not even about you know finding evidence; it's about just putting them down, stopping them. Um. So the 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 backdrop of of this whole thing is is the legend of this place called Ease, which is which is in in uh, Brittany, in in northern France, and 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 the names of of all these people, Alan Alan Karanak and and Dehout, These are these are I guess in the in the Breton dialect, which which I guess is like halfway between French and French and English. And, yeah, they, and but they speak in Brittany apparently. Yeah, Jeff, you you looked in, into some of this. You said I looked very briefly into it because, uh, like I said, my uh, before my interest was piqued, in as much as De Hood is referred to in more than one place as the Demoiselle de Ease, and there is a short story by that title in the book *The King in Yellow* by Robert W. Chambers, uh, and in that story. There's a guy who goes out hiking in northern France, and he stumbles into the, I think, 15th century, meets a girl, stays overnight, stumbles back out of the 15th century, oh, wanders so it's, off. it's basically Brigadoon. Yeah, it's basically, um, yeah, sort of. But he does come back later and discover a, like a memorial or grave of the girl that he met, um, the, the titular Demoiselle. So it's 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 Brigadoon without the American musical happy ending. Sure, sure. I think that that's fairly apt. Um, but that that was not something that I I had always assumed. Um, that was not something that I had ever assumed to be actual folklore. But I did a minimal amount of digging, and yes, it it turns out according to you know Wikipedia's disambiguation pages. That's about how much depth I went into. Um, right. That the whole concept of the lost city of ease is a an actual Breton folktale, and it's a source of a, a substantial library of associated fantasy. It just goes to show you how little I know about the genre that I wasn't more familiar with it. Paul Anderson wrote like a whole series that took off from it. I think I think uh, Paul Anderson is on the appendix end list, but sadly Robert Hughes is is not. So we're, yeah, well, we're not going to get to the King and Yellow, which is one of my favorite stories. Uh, Paul Anderson wrote uh, on late enough that he, I'm actually familiar with some of his some of his other stories. Okay, we'll, we will we will get to him uh, somewhere down down the line. So the the legend that is recounted in 
uh, creep shadow is that there was this uh, city of of ease, which is which was kind of almost like Atlantis in a way. Like it was it was full of like wizards, I guess, who were sacrificing people to the the Alcar Az. I think is is the name of their yep. Cthulhu like uh, deity and. Uh, the Lord of Karnak, Elaine uh, de Karnak, uh, was was the hero who who put them down, and he he did this by uh, riding into ease and seducing the witch uh, da, da Hoot and getting her to fall in love with him, and she stole for him the key to the city that that would would let in the the ocean because the seas because the city was built below sea level for some reason like uh, like Holland sure it was protected it was protected by dikes okay hmm. I see that seems like like a very like a like a strategic uh, oversight like um, like having an exhaust port that leads directly to the to the center of your of your of your death star well, you know, if you see any ancient Bretons, you can tell them that their folk tale makes no sense, and I'm sure that they'll appreciate that note, Jeff. But uh, so, so, anyways, uh, the this this witch uh, Dahoot, she she steals the keys from her father, gives them to Elaine, who uses the keys to uh, drown the city, betraying his uh, lover, and then he rides off with the woman's daughter, uh, which I guess is how the modern day. Uh, uh, Demoiselle is 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 here in this in this story. Her able to be her descendant, yeah. right? Yes, because the the idea here is that these aren't re- reincarnations. These people have been hypnotized so that their their ancestral memories have been brought to the to the fore. Well, I would say it's a it's the text is ambiguous as to whether there is real magic happening or whether it's all in the mind of the victim or whether that's true or false on a case-by-case basis. But I think that the text also kind of presents the idea that it doesn't really matter whether it's something that you're, that actually happens or something that you're hypnotized into believing happens. The, uh, the end result is the same in either case. Which is, which is a theme that, that we saw in, uh, in uh, dwellers. I mean, the, the hero, uh, debates with himself whether or not all this stuff is is real or whether it's yeah it's... The, I think dwellers is a great example of that because the uh, the main character there is um, really more or less constantly uh, struggling with the idea you know am I um, a great hero of the ancient world reborn or am I a modern guy who is just you know kicking loose on a on basically a bender right. And I think the text is kind of, if, if it comes down on one side or the other, I think it comes down more on the side of the bender, actually. Yeah, but in let's... In the place of Dwellers in the Mist. Well, I get almost an analogy of, like, uh, the equivalent of the shadow where you're clouding men's minds, or in this case, a woman's clouding men's minds, mm-hmm. to develop it as a whole. Basically, because there's no substantial force, at least as far as just only shadows, it's almost like a hypnotic effect or mysticism when it comes down to it there. I, you know, you're, and basically it's based along, accordingly, allegedly, scientific principles. Therefore, it's more accurate. It's kind of almost a melding of magic and modern science. It was it, it was the popular science of 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 the time. You know, yeah, I, it was I, it was I, very. I'm, I'm guessing it was very current. Of I don't know if it was current as late as um, what when was this written? 1934. But uh, you know, you have the spiritualism trend and uh, theosophy and so forth. 
which were all about taking the the wisdom of the ancient ascended masters from Shambhala and applying modern scientific principles to all of the astral projection and telepathy and mm -hmm. past life regression and so forth that would uh, would have been going on. But I I want to talk about uh, uh, Dahut's uh, powers with with uh, shadows because I, I I I think that's one of the, one of the more unique things about about this story. So like apparently she's able to. Uh, take people's souls or or their or their shadows and separate them from their from their bodies and then send these shadows after people and then and then the victims start seeing shadows out of the corner of their of their eye and they and they slowly go go crazy and the shadows get stronger and stronger and eventually like consume them consume their life force or whatever yeah, well, what we saw happening in the first part of the book, what we were having described to us, as I interpreted it, was that Alan's various friends who had died mysteriously, all of whom were, were had been getting visited by Dehut, who was sort of projecting astrally herself as a shadow, and using some sort of psychic vampirism. Well, she, she wasn't uh, projecting which, herself, because she, she names the shadow... The the one that that killed Ralston has a name. It's it's uh, Bredis or, or or something. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, mm -hmm. The that's kind of a twist actually, because the shadow, the specific details that were given about the shadow that kills the guys are pretty vague. But one thing that comes up is the way that her hair looked, and Dahut is described as having her hair in the same style in more than one place. And I had actually forgotten that uh, towards the end of the book, least, it's revealed that it's actually somebody that, else yeah. that Dehut sent after it. Somebody who, I guess, had her hair done up the same way because that was like the standard Breton witch style. Yeah, that's yeah, I get, that's that's what I, what I can come up with as an explanation. So like, it's 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 not her that that's that's doing the doing the murdering. It's her it's her shadow minions, which is which is kind of cool, right? For for a for a villain. Um, there's there's a couple of interesting things about the shadows, um, but I may be getting ahead of myself in interrupting you. So. I, I I think she is isn't she That's also sacrificing them to the entity that 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 she and her father wants to wants to summon. So okay, so they're they're the bad guy's big plan is to uh, build a reproduction of ancient ease in Ro Rhode Island. And, and I'm wondering if, if Merritt just did this as an homage to, to uh, Lovecraft, because they, they did uh, cor correspond during, during their lifetime. They were, they were yeah, fans yeah, he of... Said it, he said it at basically one of the Vanderbilt mansions. Right, the, uh, the, Newport, the famous Newport mansions of Rhode Island. Uh, these enormous estates. I, I just got the impression that he'd heard about the uh, the Newport mansions and thought, hey, that sounds like a great place for my evil wizard to set up a base. Yeah, I mean, like like halfway through this story, it suddenly becomes a very Lovecraftian story because you've, you, you've got uh, McGann, who, who represents the gangsters, going to this small New, New England town and, and talking to these, you know, locals, and they're going, oh, there's, there's this creepy wizard family, and then they've got shadow dogs, and people keep disappearing. It's, it, it almost becomes the, the Dunwich horror for, for a couple chapters. That's uh, a fair comparison, I think, uh, for, that, for that fairly brief window where McCann is obtaining that information. Right, yeah. I mean, that, that part's really cool. Um, 
So their 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 master plan, uh, the the Decaradels, is is to uh, build a a reproduction of ancient ease down to the stone uh, uh, monolith that they use to sacrifice victims to the the Alcar as or or whatever whatever the or I, it's it, it's also called the Gatherer. The right? extremely ill-defined Great Old One. Right. It's, it goes or the Gozerian. Basically, they they the basically smash people's rib cages with hammers, but but then we we also see that that the shadows themselves are being devoured or or sacrificed to this to this thing. I mean, the thing will obviously take lifeblood, souls, etc. However, it can get them. Right. It's it's a bad thing. Um, yeah. So so Alan goes to and and investigate and. Um, for, uh, you know what, it, it, it kind of reminds me of, of, of the prisoner. Cause like he, he shows up at, at this place and he keeps blacking out, right? He gets, he gets, he gets drugged. He gets hip hypnotized. Every time he wakes up, he's, he's not sure where he is or what he's, he's been, he's been doing. It's, it's, it's a very trippy time. He has a secret gun. Sometimes his secret gun is right where he put it. Sometimes his secret gun has been moved. Sometimes the bullets have been taken out of his secret gun. Sometimes the bullets have been put back into his secret gun. He doesn't know what's going on. And isn't isn't that just a just a metaphor for life, Jeff? <laughs> it sums it up for all of us, I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I mean, he 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 tries to play it, it it very cool. I mean, he's he he's very clever. Like like a like a couple of times. One one time he wakes up and he he realizes he's been drugged and and there's these these leaves burning, which he realizes are supposed to wake wake him up, and he doesn't know how quickly he's supposed to wake up, but he 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 thinks he might have woken up too soon. So he he steals some of the, some of the, of the leaves for later in case he's drugged again, and then smokes a bunch of cigarettes to to create fake ashes, and then goes back to sleep. It's a very player charactery sort of thing to do. But I I thought that was great. Yeah. So like he's he's very clever a number of times, but he 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 never seems to completely out out with the the Decaradels. They they manage to slip him. Some, some some kind of green wine and actually take him to the sacrifice and he participates in the sacrifice um and then he he wakes up later and he's like oh god what did i do um, there's a whole sequence about how even when he's been drugged he's not willing to actually hold the hammer for smashing the uh sacrifice's chests open but he is willing to hold the bowl that collects the blood that drains out of them Right, and he's—I mean, he's—he's he's still complicit because he stood by and and didn't stop, or at least he—he—he he, he feels feels that that way. Um, I—I th- I th- I think it—it it all comes to a head when he he wakes up after the sacrifice, and I think one of, one of the implements is is still there. There's a there's a bowl caked with with dry blood, and so like because the bowl is there, he knows that it it, it really happened, and he takes it to. De Caradel, and De Caradel's like that bowl should not have been in your room. Uh, my my daughter must have put it there, and then Dahut shows up, and she's like, I didn't put it there. 
Uh, you're skipping over one of my favorite scenes in the story, which is in between uh, Alan confronting DeCaradel and Dahut coming in. DeCaradel and Alan have this conversation, which reminded me of nothing so much as O.J. Simpson's book, If I Did It, where Alan basically accuses DeCaradel of being an evil wizard. And DeCaradel is like, well, I'm obviously not an evil wizard, but if I was... This is my. Pl- this is what my plan would be, and here's why I think you would be well served to go along with it, uh, and join the winning team and become my evil wizard apprentice. If I was an evil wizard, which obviously I'm not, but if I was, this is what. Uh, this is a lot of exposition that the author could not come up with a, another way to unload. So if I was a wizard, this is what I would be doing, and why. Precisely, the one I found really weird with, and they were actually on the site, was the whole conversation with the blue bottle fly. Where you have it on the walls, keep screaming out, Dahoot, beware of Dahoot, Alan, beware of Dahoot. And I'm trying to figure out exactly what that was. Oh, d- doesn't he talk to the to the ghost of his his friend, Dick Dick Ralston, at, at, at some point? I'm not sure if, if that's the blue bottle fly or if that's uh, uh, different. Th- oh, we're, 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 we're also skipping over the, the scene where he visits uh, her in New York and gets drugged. And then has to sneak out of her her bedroom window. That that I thought was hilarious. That's actually I, I would call that the high point of the book. Yeah, and he basically freaks, bolts, and runs away, and tries to pretend if anything actually happened is terrified to go back. And he 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 just winds up with these random poker players who are playing poker at like four in the morning because it's New York City, guys. The city that never sleeps. Right. Yep. Yeah. So, anyways, but back okay back back to the back to the climactic uh scene um yeah so so like after being drugged several times and participating in in the sacrifice and confronting the confronting the bad guys um he i i think yeah he he tries to get a way to get to his his uh gangster friends to let them know that it's it's time to commence the final assault on on the compound and uh, Dahoot chases him down with with her shadow hounds riding her 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 shadow horse, and we 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 get to see what 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 the shadows are like from 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 the shadow side because she separates uh, Alan's shadow from his his body and controls him for a time and and he goes through I guess the the shadow plane or the or the astral plane. And it's this it's this really cool scene where like I, I I don't know if we said it while we were recording, but he 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 has this silver cord leading from his shadow self back to his 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 body, which those of those of you who are familiar with the way uh, astral travel works in Dungeons and Dragons, if you travel to the astral plane, you you've got a, a silver cord leading from your from your astral self back to your to your body. So this this is likely one of the things that that Gygax was was thinking of when he when he put that in the in the game but so Alan wanders the wanders the 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 shadow plane for a while he talks to a creepy old man who wants to come back to to the real world with him and and finally he he sees this this giant thing that's eating the eating the shadow people and I, I, I guess it's the same entity that uh, the Decaradels are, are 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 sacrificing people to. I'm, I'm not sure if, if that's made ex- explicitly clear or not, but it's it's a it's a bad thing. 
Yeah, I yeah. actually assumed that it was an unrelated Great Old One slash Giant Evil Monster, but I suppose there's no reason to have two Great Old Ones when you can get by with just one. Uh, two, two Great Old Ones is, is, is even better. What really is interesting is when he becomes the Shadow Beast, for lack of a better term, he focuses fixation on the good woman, Helen. Whom we Basically. actually have not mentioned up to this point. So we should just say uh, there's a woman. She's Helen. She's there at the dinner party. Uh, she knew Alan when they were little kids. And by authorial fiat, the, uh, fiat they're, they're in love. So good for them. Um, we, that's basically all there is to Helen. Yeah, well, good woman. A bit of a brat. And uh, you can definitely tell she's trying to act as the moderating force against the evil woman. To I'm, I'm not sure that that is all that there is to Helen, because she says quite definitively several times that she knows how to fight the witch, as, like, as, as if she's more than just a, a you know, a, a rich girl living in New York City. And... I, I interpreted that simply as Helen being confident that she was able to succeed in the arena of two girls who were both into the same guy. I'm not so sure because I think I think one of the bad guys I think I think it's Dahoot makes makes reference to a a Helene with a with a with a with a e, e on the end. So from 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 that I'm I I'm guessing that 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 Helen was is is also some unknown figure from 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 the past who just wasn't part of the of of the legend I guess. That could be, um, but either way, she's not given a whole lot to do in this story. I think I think she's she's she she still comes off as a as a pretty strong character. I mean, every every choice that she makes is a is a is a conscious one, and um, yeah, I don't yeah. I, that's I guess, actually yeah. that's fair because we were about to start talking, or Chris was about to identify the the big thing that Helen does. Um, which is, or at least arguably, the thing that makes it possible for the good guys to win. Uh, so why don't, Alan... why don't, why don't you, you, you describe what that is, Chris? Yes, yes, Chris, Chris, please. <laughs> well, I think the real thing that's interesting here is it looks like there's an assault to the shadow thing, you know, back in Chapter 19. But when he basically does it there, he basically is an abject horror of the... The thirst late Helen, for all intents and purposes. She lay there, white and drained of life, half covered by the red color guard, and she was dead, had Doctor conquered. It was this act of, well, horror that almost ends up building him up a little bit here for the next round when it comes to the last sacrifice in the final chapter. So, and Oh, sorry, go on. Well, I I think what's what's going on here is is Dahoot sends Shadow Allen to murder Helen so that I I guess she won't have any any competition. And Helen somehow knows that, that, like this is a is a is a process that needs to go on for 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 a while. Like um, Alan needs to murder her uh, when he's like ravenous with with hunger, or else it's not gonna work. Yeah, Alan has this like killing power bar that is slowly filling up, and he can't kill Helen until it's full. So she gets him to attack her, gives him permission to do that uh, while his murder bar is still not completely full. So there's a little bit of a gap there, and that gap is what allows Helen to cling to life. 
And it, it, it's, not it's also what, what allows Alan to return to humanity somehow. somehow. Yes, yes. Yeah. Somehow that's very, very nebulously described because as soon as he finishes attacking and not quite killing Helen, he feels his old self again and is able to go back to his body and uh, win the day. And, and then he finds out at the end that Helen uh, survived the experience. After all, everybody can live happily ever after. That's great. And this, I mean, this is this is what makes me think Helen is also a witch of some kind because she seems to know exactly what she's doing. That's a fair point, and I'm perfectly willing to uh, walk back my assertions that Helen Helen was uh, uninteresting and had nothing going on. I mean, if 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 I were a a modern director making making a making a movie out of this, that's that's how I would spin it. Anyways, um, I suppose the thing that really bothers me is how Alan and Helen haven't seen each other in many, many years, and then they meet at this dinner party, and boom, they're in love. Yeah, well, that's that's very contrived. Yes, um, but if we if we assume that uh, the the romance is is real and wasn't a, a hasty contrivance from, by the by the author. Um, and you could even say that he's covering his own tracks there because if Elaine de Karnak uh, back in ancient times and Helene the Enchantress were lovers, who's to say that Helen and Alan shouldn't be immediately right. in love? It's right. similar to the effect that Dahut has on Alan as soon as he sees her. Right. In short, history repeats itself. Yeah, which I think um, makes me feel kind of bad for the evil wizard, uh, Dahut's father. Because he gets defeated in exactly the same way um, a second time. Yeah. So how how does he the climax have, he play can't out, have Jeff? failed to see that coming? Why don't why don't why don't you 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 describe Jeff how the how the how the climax plays plays out? Well, the uh, short, simple version is that Elaine returns to his body, finds Dehut, um, demands that she you know change sides from the side of Gozer the Gozerian uh, towards the side of humanity. She agrees to do that. Um, the mobsters burst into the compound uh, as the evil wizard is uh, mounting his last round of blood sacrifices so that Gozer the Gozerian can enter our world. There's a fight that's going on between the cultists who have been mind-controlled by the evil wizard and the gangsters. And then Dahut uses some kind of sea magic. Dahut has been associated with the sea and the ocean over and over again in the story up to this point. She uses some kind of sea magic to just flood the whole area, wash everybody away, disrupt the ritual. Uh, a bunch of gangsters die, which is something that the, um, I forget his name, the, the head gangster complains about at the end. Uh, uh, Rick Ricori, yes, he yeah. complains about how a bunch of gangsters just died in that enormous dramatic thing. Yeah, I mean the uh, the gangsters are almost superfluous in the in the end. It's I feel like they're they're mainly perhaps because they were in Burn Witch Burn. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, and it's weird. They almost felt like the cavalry in a lot of ways, despite being well mobsters. They were there to set up there. It seems they seemed almost altruistic. When it came yeah. to their actions, which felt really weird, considering uh, all the I, other analogies I, there. I guess the thinking was that Mobsters there was witches. there was no way the good no guys way. were going to prove in a court of law <laughs> that the Decaradels were evil wizards. So the the best thing to do was was go to the to the underworld. 
Yeah, although in um, retrospect, the gangsters could have sat this one out and it would have been largely the same since it's Alan and Hoot that ultimately disrupt the ritual, defeat the evil wizard and Gozer the Gozerian and uh, save the day. Right. Just despite all the, all the business with Alan passing uh, McCann's secret messages throughout, throughout yeah. the last third of the story. McCann's recon uh, in the middle of the story was was super useful, but yes. at, but that's really the only thing that the mafia element brings to the table. Yeah, in terms of the uh, what the services provided to the good guys. So so this this giant wave comes in and sweeps uh, Dick Haradel and and his house and and all his evil plans back out to sea, and and I, I believe uh, this this wave uh, has like horses on it, like like the thing in. Um, uh, the Fellowship of the of the Ring. Uh, could be. Could be. I'm, I'm not. I don't have it right in front of me. And then uh, Dahut herself also gets washed back out to sea by the by the same ocean magic. Yes, which is mm-hmm. really convenient for the good guys. They don't have to worry about what to do with her. Yeah. So it it, it doesn't seem like Alan actually does anything. Dahut just like accidentally casts her spell wrong, and and ends up ends up dying. And everyone gets to go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only thing that Alan does is convince Dahut to save the day. Yes, out of out of love. Yeah, yeah out of love, she basically interferes with the ritual and causes history, history to repeat again. History repeats. Yeah. Yeah, he basically says, "I'll I I will be with you as long as you're alive." And she's not alive for very much much longer, so he keeps his promise, I guess. Yeah, works out great for him. Yeah. All right, so. So I've, I'm speaking of it a little dismissively because the ending is a little bit pat, but this was certainly an entertaining, an entertaining story. I would not say otherwise about it. Yeah, I don't. I, I forget if if I've already said it, but like, I mean, compared to lots of lots of the Lovecraft stories that 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 we read, uh, this this story is is eminently fil- filmable. You could you you could definitely make a make a make a modern, you know, summer blockbuster movie out of out of this. Um. And other otherwise, I mean, I think I think we've we've agreed that uh, Merritt's prose is, you know, rather rather bland compared to Lovecraft, Howard, uh, Dunsany. Uh, he he tells you the facts. You know, it's it's descriptions of places, dialogues. There's really no artistry or or anything. Uh, he's really in intelligent his his history and his science is 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 well researched i mean he's he's obviously a a well-traveled uh newspaper editor so i mean he he clearly knows about high society new new york and 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 what 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 the nightlife is like um so i i guess we can we can see why he was a popular writer in in his time but but the fact that just his stories are just they're they're good stories but but they're but they're not um they they don't stand out i guess this this felt like a remix of a lot of stories that i've read even though i haven't really read very many stories really that are in this genre this particular sort of past life ancestral ancestral memory um ancient past colliding with the modern world mm-hmm. fantasy this, this this sort of plays out like if you if you wanted to do a Call of Cthulhu scenario in Dungeons and, and Dragons, not in Call of Cthulhu, where where you are heroes with swords and not 
ordinary feeble people like this this is a way that you could you could do it like you could you could be be the mobsters charging in and you know assaulting everybody or like maybe you 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 send one guy over the wall to do to do recon and that's and that's your that's your allen yeah, I could see that. I also could see the main purpose would be almost more color text. Like, I did a little bit of reading, and apparently one of the things I was reading on this retrospective was the idea of using a lot of the ambience to set up something like the Chapel of Evil Chaos from the classic module B2 in order to set the backdrop, because it's obviously an evil cultist, something DD often goes to the well for in order to set up a basic module or premise. You have a big evil god, they're going to do some horrible ritual, you got to stop them. Mm-hmm. Additionally, uh, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself here. The shadow elements are awesome. Let's let's talk a little bit about that because if I'm looking at this book, the shadow stuff is definitely the stuff that I'm looking at and thinking this is something with applications to you know to F20 gaming to Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, This is. I, this is perhaps the origin of the idea of a plane of shadow. Mm-hmm. And the thing that struck me as really interesting about it, um, something that I wasn't really expecting, was a, an aspect of the astral plane, an aspect of the plane of shadows, that's very similar to um, the Nexus in the movie Star Trek Generations, which is mm. that it is a timeless place. Right. The shadows that are there don't experience the normal flow of time. Um, there's a shadow that Alan meets over the course of his, his travels who reveals himself to be like a knight from 600 years earlier. And it's not obvious to me, at least, that that knight from 600 years earlier did not eventually leave the plane of shadows and return to his 600 years earlier mortal existence after his visit to the shadow realm. But there's still this shadow version of him that exists in the, the timeless plane of shadows. I, I'm assuming that most of the people that he meets in the, in, in the shadow plane are, are people that uh, Dahut has, has captured and is using as her, as her minions. Yeah, this particular knight identifies um, Bernice something as being the witch that captured him, which is interesting because now we have like three, four different witches, all of whom have the same M.O. Interesting. Well, I mean, in Dungeons and Dragons, all all wizards pull from the same spell list, so. That's true. That's true. So maybe this is sort of a standard spell, you know, enslave knight, fifth level, save versus uh, will. Either that or it was basically just what was left of the person when it comes down to it there. Like, you, we talk about the blue bottle fly, but we also may talk about some of these people may be nothing more than shades. They're dead, but they're being animated because Dahut is such a strong force of will. This is the leftovers. And she bases not on like, what happens with shadows in D&D. Yeah. Basically, you kill somebody and they become a shadow. However, these shadows, despite being kind of mindless, had a lot of personality. Like, is it just me, or were most of the shadows that we found were women? Um, no, there, um, there, there were those. There was that bunch of women in the in the pool. The knight, the knight takes him to a pool with a with a bunch of women in, in it. But I mean, the 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 knight's a dude, and then and then he he meets this this old man with a with a pointed hat, who's like, "Take me back to the real world. I want to go back to the real world, please." 
But what we're hearing from that is that the realm of shadow is a place that has well, it has knights, it has women, and it has guys with pointed hats. Yep. Uh, which is a pretty fair amount of differentiation, right? And it would seem like these people ought to be able to have you know, conversations with one another, and perhaps experience the flow of time, and. Uh, Yet there's a sort of stasis that they're all in, which is sort of similar to the uh, – uh, what's it called? Greek land of the dead. Uh, Hades. Hades. Sure, Hades. Yeah, that's, that's what, I, what I was also, also thinking of. Like, like maybe this, this is just like where the souls of, of the dead go to wait, wait around for whatever's next. In terms of making this a gameable thing, it's like a very limited kind of time travel. You know, if there's some guy who knew a secret, you can go to the realm of shadow and find his shadow and get that secret out of him, even if he lived a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Which I, I don't know, seems like it could be a incredibly useful plot element to your typical uh, Dungeons and Dragons game. Mm-hmm. I mean, some sometimes that's accomplished by. Uh, oh, someone trapped his soul in a in a gem, and you have to find the gem in the in the bottom of of of, of a dungeon. But uh, planar planar travel is also also yeah, definitely a way to way to way to do that thing. Um, and and you get to send your your player characters to an alternate plane where they get to fight monsters they're not used to fighting. So double win, right? Yeah, it's a whole you know go to the land of the dead um, adventure arc, which is. Something that goes all the way back to you know, the Odyssey, etc. Obviously. All right. Well, um, I I think we've just about exhausted our discussion of of this book. Chris, did you have any final comments? Not really, for the most part. Like the only things I could find as far as any sort of symbology that might be used is, of course, the spell charm person for a good chunk of the first part of the story. And the fact that they use a golden sickle, which is commonly a druidic item when it comes to, you know, focuses in oh, D&D yeah. gaming. Oh, they're, they're, I think, I think, uh, De, De Caradel wields a, wields a maul and Dahoot wields a sickle, which are, which are the symbols of communism, com, communist Russia. Um, Symbolism. Yay. Which I'm not even sure was, was that even a thing in 1934? I Absolutely. Yes. Oh yeah, yes. was it? In okay. fact, if anything... Communism was still being appeared as a good thing, heck, as early as Metropolis, where if you watch that movie, it's basically a giant, giant communist movie for promoting the benefits of all man because against the hated capitalists. But but these that's are, neither these are there. the bad guys. Exactly. Wielding, wielding these implements in human, human, human sacrifice. Exactly. So, maybe well, it's, I think it was just, maybe well, the it's, last Rose book we read contained anti-communist elements. What's that? Uh, I said the last Burroughs book that we read. Oh yeah, uh, Pirates of Venus. Pirates I remember that Venus. one. Yeah. Uh, so I think that I mentioned this uh, earlier, but it may have been before we started recording, which yes. leads me to a side question: Jeff, is the recording still happening? It, 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 it is still happening. We got cut off. That didn't. Are cause you a problem? Are you going to talk about how how perhaps that uh, this this book and books like it led to the cliches that writers in the 70s were, were trying to shy away from. Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up um, and reading a lot of science fiction and fantasy, I was mainly reading stuff that had been written sometime, at least after Watergate, 
certainly. I'm okay. not going to say it was necessarily within my lifetime. It may have been stuff from the 70s. I was born in 1979. Can you give us some examples? Um, I probably could have uh, an hour and a half ago when I was think- first thinking about it. I see. But, um, sure, I'll say Dragonlance. I'll say all of the Tolkien-inspired stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a, a real tradition of this kind of fantasy, which is, you know, fantasy set in Middle Earth, fantasy set in the Forgotten Realms, fantasy mm-hmm. set in um, other, other lands. Earth, um, Earthsea and stuff, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, Earth, Earthsea and so forth. And a lot of the time in the first part of the 20th century, when you had stories like that when you had settings like that it was set in an unimaginably distant past such as um conan's hyperborea or it was set in an unimaginably distant future such as jack vance's the dying earth right and it was rare that it was happening in you know anything like the the here and now although that's something that has certainly changed um in terms of the focus of fantasy settings. Since I was a kid, we had things like the Dresden Files and the Rise of Urban Fantasy and so forth. But even with things like the Dresden Files and other urban fantasy, you have the idea that there are wizards who are just sort of around, right? There's magic that is uh, present in the modern day. Right. So, I mean, we, so, we, we see that in, in, the, in the Dunwich Horror. Yes, uh, the Dunnish War is, is probably a, a, a good example of that um, because it kind of it actually kind of straddles the two different uh, kinds of magic that I'm uh, kinds of setting that I'm thinking about, or yeah, two of the three different kinds of setting that I'm thinking about. This is a fairly complicated explanation of a fairly simple idea, so you, right. you might want to just cut this whole thing out. No problem. But, uh, you have fantasy where the setting is a secondary world, You have, like Middle-earth. You have fantasy where the setting is a contemporary magical present, you know, earth, regular world plus wizards, like the Dresden Files. Uh, but what you see in Burn Witch Burn and in a lot of these early to mid-century sort of fantasy stories, I, I think, is a... Um, a setting where there's the modern world and there's magic, but the magic is not of the modern world. The magic is coming to us from the distant past. You're you're, you're talking about like like uh, lost world stuff, like I mean like like uh, dwellers where they where they find like a, like a prehistoric valley or exactly exactly or journey I, to the center of the earth or and I, I or can and I can't think of anything that is more dated in fantasy that more seems like a product of uh, you know 1890 to 1940 that that era than the concept of the lost city or the hollow earth or the magical realm that is somewhere on the globe that we haven't yet explored well, right that was so, that was something that came up so often over and over again in stories in this era uh, and the kinds of stories that I was reading as a kid, it never came up. And if, if you had taken, you know, junior high school age Jeff aside and said, hey, Jeff, what do you think about that, that whole uh, line of fantasy, the idea of hidden cities, lost worlds, etc.? I would say, mm-hmm. oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an old cliche. That's, that's stupid. That's something that, um, you know, nobody's into anymore. It's out of fashion. Yeah, well, I'd argue that one of the reasons why is the 30s was one of the last ages of exploration, 
it was yeah. the last time where it could be conceivable that you could go into the Amazon rainforest or into the Pacific and find something like Skull Island or the plateau from uh, the dinosaurs uh, that Burroughs wrote or something to that effect. As our technology improved, we are less likely to find something hidden until we have find something totally new, at least and, not easily yeah. accessible. Hmm. So and, the idea then being that as technology uh, technology improves over the course of the 20th century, it becomes less plausible that there might be a gateway to the hollow earth, but simultaneously you have urbanization and um, you know, the changes to the culture, it seems more likely that that guy who lives around the corner that you don't know anything about is secretly a wizard. Precisely. And on top of that, the 30s was the age where you had that little bit of technology that would make it easier. Radios, steamships, you know, and so forth. Because that's when you start using oil to generate power. Automobiles. Suddenly, you had places that could be hidden, but also could be accessed. It was probably the best era where you could have your cake and eat it too, ultimately. When it came to that environment. Mm -hmm. One last thing. I was actually looking through my notes. And I brought up a really interesting point that I skimmed over last time. When we're talking about mysticism, there were two words that came up that were really kind of interesting when I was reading the sentence. Progressive hallucination. It wrote down the following steps. First, the idea of movement. Then the sharpening into shapes. Then sound. Hallucinating, progressing into the visuals field to the auditory. It almost feels like it's built the same way D&D spells are for illusions. You start with a sight and then you put the sound in afterwards and the other visual effects. I, I was not uh, aware of that. Is that, is, is, is that how the illusion spells progress? Because I, I guess at, like it's, at first level you've got like, like you have silent minor image. Minor first. image. Yes. Yeah. Right, silent image, and then it gradually becomes more... I don't know if it actually becomes more believable with the way that the older magic system works, if, it, if the, it becomes something that's harder to disbelieve or not. But you can include certainly more elements, um, more senses get mm. fooled by the spells. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So have we, have we exhausted everything that we have to say about Creep Shadow? Did I mention past lives and ancestral memories and theosophy as a major inspiration, as one of the cliches that the second half of the 20th century fantasy tried to write away from that was so prevalent in the first half of the 20th century fantasy? I, I think we've mentioned that it's a, it's a cliche, possibly. Good enough for me. Good enough for me. That works. Yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly showed up in all of Merritt's works that we've read on this show. Yeah, they're all. Oh, I always figure there's like three people that listen to this, and one of them is listening to it only because he's a huge fan of these authors. And I feel kind of bad for ever talking smack uh, against Merritt for reusing the same elements over and over again. Uh, but yeah, he reuses the same elements over and over again. I, I, I keep hearing that, that Stephen King like writes the same story over and over again. I've, I've never actually read any Stephen King, so I have no idea if that's, if that's true. I think you can make that case. Like I would, I would compare like Merritt dur during his time. Like he was probably comparable to someone like Stephen King, or James Patterson, right? Like I don't know anyone who's ever read a James Patterson novel and come to me and said, "Wow, this this was great," but his books sure are everywhere, <laughs> right? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's basically merit. He's 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 popular. He he appealed to to the popular tastes of the 1930s, and because those tastes have changed, he's been completely for, forgotten about, except for us. And in his defense, he's not that bad, folks. You should give these stories a read and see for yourselves what you think. Well, if I had to say one word to approach it, it would be workmanlike. It's well made, but it's made almost on a machine in a lot of ways. You can definitely say he's hitting the tropes and hitting the beats consistently over time after time. He's not as bad as, like, say, with Burroughs, but you can definitely see the elements of a similar model where he's almost following off a schematic yeah. when it comes to story designs. Yeah. Burroughs, Burroughs went from uh, genre creator to uh, sausage maker, I guess. Mm-hmm. In, <laughs> well, he, he figured out what people liked, and man, did he like to give it to them. Yes, yep. yes, yes, he did. All right. But I think it's true that if you're imagining a spectrum with uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs at one end and H.P. Lovecraft or Robert Howard at the other end, Merrill, uh, he Merrill kind of fits in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. So should you read this book? It depends on whether or not you want to. That's my conclusion. I do not regret reading it. But honestly, some of the elements it was having difficulty remembering because of the writing and the way it was set up. So it'll be an enjoyable read, but don't be surprised if you don't remember it later. I would I would recommend reading Dwellers in the, in the Mirage. I would recommend reading Creep Shadow. I would not recommend reading... Uh, the 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 moon pool, so that's that's my that's my final say. All right, uh, Chris, uh, I believe you have uh, an, an an RPG that you are working on. Oh, absolutely! As mentioned a couple of times already, I am working on Dark Revelations, the role playing game. Our website is derevrpg.blogspot.ca. Recently, I did a Victoria Day special where I did a subversion of the Snake People concept. But instead of having your typical evil creatures from the end of the worlds, I decided to take the most communal of snakes, the garter snake, as a base, as it was inspired by the Narcissus snake pits of Manitoba. Interesting. So I think it'd be, it's actually a lot of fun, but I'll let you guys read it for yourself at the website of drevrpg.blogspot.ca. All right, everyone, check out Chris's uh, website and blog. And Jeff, you sometimes write stuff, sometimes you don't, but it's Sometimes all... I write things. It's at uh, jeffwick.com, J-E-F-F-W-I-K. Yes, indeed. And I would like to take a moment to plug a different and completely, almost completely unrelated podcast, but one that I am going to be recording an episode of in a couple of days. It is called Hold My Order, Terrible Dresser. And it is a podcast about WKRP in Cincinnati, the TV show. Ooh, nice. So just Google, I think if you just Google the words, hold my order, terrible dresser, you will find it. All right, so well, or, if, or heck, WKRP podcast because I'm pretty sure it's the only one. If we if we have any any crossover fandom between people who listen to this show and people who might be interested in a, in a podcast about uh, WKRP in, in Cincinnati, I'm sure those people would be excited to hear your announcement. It's by some guys that I used to game with. Good times. Good times indeed. Listeners, did you like the show that you just heard? Did you hate it? Either way, we want to hear from you. Send an email with your thoughts to thetomeshow at gmail.com. Make sure to put Appendix N in the subject line. Visit our webpage to leave a comment or shop at our Amazon store at thetomeshow.com. 
You can follow along with the Appendix and podcast by reading what we're reading. And if you'd like to be a guest on an upcoming show, just let us know. No expertise is required. Next up, we will return to the weird fiction of H.P. Lovecraft, talking about the dream quest of Unknown Kadath. Later in June, we will be discussing the three more Conan stories by Robert E. Howard, The Slithering Shadow, The Pool of the Black One, and Rogues in the House. And in August, we will be reading A Martian Odyssey by Stanley Weinbaum. These are all available in the public domain, so find them, read them, and join us for our discussions. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 17, Creep, Shadow, Creep by A. Merritt. Thanks for listening.